When you read a text like this, I suppose people do all sorts of things with it. And God is certainly not a bush. But let me just start by asking you this question. What is God hoping to reveal about himself that Moses, Israel, and the church, that's you, need to hear? Certainly we can put ourselves in Moses' shoes. He's minding his own business. He's a shepherd. He's given up on Israel and Egypt, it seems, and he's done. And in the midst of Guarding these sheep, he sees the burning bush, and God appoints him to ministry. Certainly a change in his life call, isn't it? Going from shepherd of sheep to national leader, confronting one of the world's most powerful nations and persons. God speaks to him and calls him. But it's more than that. At least for the short interim, this is how Israel is to know God. Through Moses revealing to them, that is Israel, who God is based on what God says here at the burning bush. Add more so if you were to read the Psalms and the rest of Scripture. Until we get to the gospel of Jesus Christ, this stands as a monument for who God is above all other monuments. That when you read the Old Testament Scriptures again and again, they say, look back to when God brought us out of Egypt. Look back to who God is, who he revealed his name to be, and point back to the exodus and the entry into the promised land. In other words, this is a watershed book, and I would suggest to you that this is a watershed text in a watershed book. That is, it is this place where God reveals his name, who he is and what he is like to his people, and for you then, the simple question, what is God trying to do for you this morning as you read this text? When we come to the first few verses, look with me uh, down in the, in the outset. As verse 3 says, Moses, uh, Moses uh, is recorded to say, I will turn aside. Verse 4, the Lord saw he turned aside. God called out to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Verse 5 now. Then he said, do not come near. Take off your sandals. For the place which you're standing is holy ground. Okay, so God reveals he is holy and cannot be approached as a mere man. Verse 6, and he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. To call himself God reveals that he is in covenant relationship with these people, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and even Moses' own father. Okay, so we've learned two things about God, right? Two truths are being laid in front of us. He is holy and not to be approached casually. He is also a God who has relationships with these people, so much so that they're, they're, they're anchored not just as like we're buddies, but they're anchored to his promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And they relate to him by faith. Remember we looked at that in Genesis, how Abraham responds in faith. That leads to obedience while God is faithful to his promises to them and they have a relationship of God to subject. We could almost relate it this way of king to subject. That is the person who obeys and honors the king. As you continue reading, verse 7, 
I have surely seen the affliction of, notice what he says there, my people. And as God is not merely a covenantal God who keeps his promises, but he looks at the, the people in his promises as his people. Now, this would be nothing more than you would expect if you talk to a lady and she's married to a man. She would say, my husband. She is giving you two, two ways of describing him, right? My, my husband, and he's husband to me. That is, he's a covenantal relationship as husband to my wife, and he's mine. Right? So there's a lot of wives in the room. There's a lot of husbands in the room, and I only have one of them, right? My wife. It both personalizes and then shows the relationship of covenantal. So when God says, my people and I am their God, he is showing that he is in relationship with Israel and he's heard their cries. He's seen their affliction. Verse 8, he's come down to deliver them, revealing that he's a rescuer. Moses in verse 13 says, if they ask who you are, God, who am I to tell them? And this is where God reveals his name, and he says, I am. We looked at this last week. He is self-existent. That is, he, he's not dependent on us or anything, any creation or any other type of thing you could imagine. He needs nothing to live. In fact, he needs nothing to be happy. God was not sitting in heaven lonely, saying, I just need a couple of these people to be with me. I'll save them, and then I'll be not lonely. I'll have company. God was not sitting up in heaven thinking, if only they could see how glorious I am, then I would be happy. God lives in eternal blessedness or, or satisfaction. He didn't need anything. I can go a few hours and then I need food. I can go about 14 hours and then I feel like I need sleep. I need these things to survive. God needs nothing. He doesn't merely, though, just exist. He eternally exists in a state of perfection, that is, there's no change in him. Look at how he says at the end of verse 15, this is my name for how long? Forever. This is who I am always. God is the unchanging and eternal self-existent God. That is, he always is who he is, and he's never changed. And this is where we ended last week with this thought of hope then. If God is unchanging, then his promises are sure. Perhaps you've made a promise that you regret. Maybe you promised to pay someone, and then you run out of money, and you're like, I don't know how to pay them now. And you regret making a foolish promise because you no longer have the means to cover it. Or perhaps your attitude towards them has changed. You promised to do them service, and you realize that they're manipulative and sleazy, and you no, want, no longer want to give away your service to them. God knows exactly who you are, and his unchanging character means his promises are secured. Not to you, not to your behavior, not to, not to your commitment to him. His promises are secured because he is unchanging. And so no matter what happens in your life, when God declares that he loves you and in saving grace rescues you and forgives you, you are secured eternally because God is eternally unchanging. He will never regret. He will never take back a promise. He will never apologize for a mistake made because there are none. This is who our God is. But this does not answer all of Moses' concerns. God calls him to a mountainous task. 
calls him to the type of task that would cause all of us to rethink our life choices. And so Moses being summoned to this task, probably sensing some fear, is promised by God then how this will come out. I want you to look with me in verse 16. And and if I just give you this outline, it might help you as we read through together. God is going to first deal with the problem of Israel and how Moses is going to recover uh, integrity of leadership in Israel. Then he's going to deal with Pharaoh. Then God is going to tell him how he's going to deal with the Egyptian people. So first you have the elders in verses 16 through the beginning of verse 18. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, Yahweh, the God of your fathers. Now remember, Yahweh has just been introduced as the personal name of God. That's why I read it in there. Yahweh, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob has appeared to me saying, I've observed you and what has been done to you in Egypt. And I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites a land flowing with milk and honey, and they will listen to your voice. And now he moves to Pharaoh. And you and the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt and say to him, Yahweh, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us, and now please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. But, God says, I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand. And strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. And after that, he will let you go. And now God tells him about Egypt. And I will give these people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And when you go, you shall not go empty. But each woman shall ask of her neighbor and a woman who lives in her house for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. And you shall put them on your sons and on your daughters. So you shall plunder the Egyptians. Okay, so God is is equipping Moses with hope, isn't he? Here's a man called to a task that, that, that just beggars his own ability to imagine success. God calls him to go to this people that have rejected him. Right? We survey back to Israel, and Moses is going to be a redeemer for Israel, and he rescues an Israelite and kills an Egyptian, and the next day an Israelite says to him what? Who made you? the ruler over us. I mean, it feels like two siblings, doesn't it? Who made you mom? And the answer is, no one yet, generally in the household. And this is Moses. He didn't have an answer. And so he runs away. And for 40 years, he's been a shepherd. And God says, go back and be the leader. I just want you to imagine going back to some 2 million people who are enslaved, who've already rejected you and being like, hey, I'm here. And I'm in charge. You can imagine Moses seeing this call and not finding any humor in it, but just being daunted by the impossibility that he would be respected or respectable in their sight and that they would receive him as leader. And to add to that, then he's supposed to gather this cadre of leaders who probably won't accept him anyway, and he's going to lead the charge to go talk to this man who can kill him with a command. The man who probably leads the most powerful nation, at least in this part of the world. And he's supposed to go to him and say, hey, let us go. Clearly, this is an option that Pharaoh has known about and has rejected 
for decades. Pharaoh could have kicked Israel out at any point. Pharaoh doesn't want Israel to leave. He wants them under his thumb. And so merely asking for the very thing that Pharaoh could do and doesn't do and doesn't want to do is going to lead in all human wisdom to a hard no. And maybe at best, get out before I kill you. Followed by that, he's going into a foreign nation that is a powerful nation, and he's going to tell this people group, hey, let your household servants and slaves go. And don't use your military power to keep us enslaved. Because it's not just Pharaoh. Egypt is oppressing Israel. Pharaoh is certainly not cracking whips. He's not out there in, in these cities that are being built by the Israelites making it happen. They have a military enforcing the power of the slave masters. And they all seem to be prejudiced against and hating Israel. So you have three insurmountable burdens that is called to face. And God says, hey, here's how it's going to happen. Go back to verse 12. I will be with you, verse 12. Right? This is what the Lord says. I will be with you. I will be with you. And this shall be a sign that I have sent you when you've brought the people out of Egypt. He's already said, This is going to happen. And why is it going to happen? Because I am going to be with you. So the the source of success is God. And now God lays out for Moses the kind of instructional blueprint, the the real basic one. You know you get like these color blueprints that are like step one, step two, step done. Like there's no detail. There's just a couple pictures. That's what we have here for Moses. Step one. Go talk to the elders. Step two, and then Pharaoh. Step three, take all the good stuff out of Egypt and walk away. You're done. Now Moses, hearing this, has got to be somewhat frustrated, and you'll see that in chapter four. He doesn't seem to really believe that God's got it in hand. But I would suggest to you this thought, and this is the essence of this text. Moses is being instructed by God in God's sovereign lordship. Then I could say it another way. The Lord is revealing or declaring his lordship. Remember, he's just introduced his name. And he's not just giving an instructional manual of how to get Israel out of Egypt. God is explaining that he is the Lord. And so I'd suggest to you, rather than seeing this as merely a plan of instruction of step one, step two, you're out, this is actually God saying, I am sovereign over Israel. I am sovereign over Pharaoh. I am sovereign over Egypt. It's God's declaration of lordship, that he has the right and he has the power to govern the whole world. Okay, those are two different things. The right... You can have a wimpy king who has the right of rulership, but is too lenient, too kind, and just a wimp. And so he doesn't do anything. He never exercises his right. You can also have a tyrant's bully who has no right, but through exertion of power or might, rules. 
God is showing Israel through Moses that he has both the right and the power to rule. So let's just look at the text real carefully and walk through it quickly together. Look with me in verse 16. The instructions here initially to to gather under his leadership all of Israel starts with the elders. Verse 16, go and gather the elders of Israel. These are the tribal leaders, the patriarchs of the nation. It'd be something maybe analogous to gather the house, the senate, the cabinet, and the president and go talk to them. You get all them, I I probably should throw in the Supreme Court, and you get it all, right? Like if, if you get all of them in agreement and you have them under your leadership, Moses, you can lead the nation. These are the representatives who will then lead their clans to follow Moses' leadership. So go gather the elders and say to them, Yahweh is the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Okay, so he's identifying again. It's like the third time in the text. We're having Yahweh identify himself as the covenant, promise-keeping, promise-making God. But this is important for Israel to know, not just for Moses, that, that, that this is the God that met with Abraham, called him out of his homeland into the land of Canaan, and established promises to build a nation up from him. In fact, if you go to Genesis 15, in verse 13, Genesis 15, 13 speaks of this moment. This is where God tells Israel that they're going to be oppressed. Scripture says, that the Lord said to Abram, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and they will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they will come out with great possessions. So when Moses goes to the elders and says, the God of Abraham sent me, they should be thinking in their minds, that God The one who said, we, the children of Abraham, were going to be slaves for 400 years. Time's up. You're going to suffer and you're going to be afflicted. Yeah, that's us. We're suffering and we're afflicted. And I am going to bring them out and into the land of promise. Oh, that's us. It's not happened yet. This is going to happen. It's that God that promised Abraham and reiterated to Isaac and then reiterated again to Jacob. That God. So so God is not merely telling Moses, just say these words. He's introducing himself to Israel through the mouth of Moses as the God who has made and is keeping promises. In fact, when you consider what, what exactly God is saying, If you look down at the end of verse 16, go and gather the elders and tell them the Lord, the God of your fathers, has has appeared and say to them, quote, I have observed you. Literally in the Hebrew, that is paid close attention. That is, God isn't merely just distant. He is present with Israel and is engaged in their suffering so that he can say, I am paying close attention, I'm right here, and I know exactly what your plight is. In fact, when he says that word affliction at the beginning of verse um, 17 there, and I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction, that's the same exact Hebrew word as back in Genesis 15, 13, when they're going to suffer. 
And he's calling forth that word. It's actually fairly unique to point out that this is exactly what was promised Abraham is going to happen. And now I'm going to bring you out of this affliction. He's going to bring them out and not merely bring them out. And just a side note, it is almost always used this way that they're going to go down to Egypt or up out of it. It's like Egypt's considered a pit from which they need to be rescued out of. And it's always up to get out of it. And it's always down when you go to it. So I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt. And where? To the land of the Canaanites, a land flowing with milk and honey. Honey seems to speak of verdant forests and milk to agricultural um, success and prosperity. In other words, it's a place of both natural good resources and agricultural prosperity. Now, I have no idea what has happened historically to the nation of Israel, but it's relatively desert-ish, especially in the southern section. But God is describing it as a place of prosperity for this nation to dwell. Now, I want you to look at the beginning of verse 18 I think the verse marker should be moved. Go and tell them. Tell them who I am, that I'm the covenant God who made these promises to Abraham. Tell them that I have seen their affliction. I know what's going on. And tell them that I'm going to rescue them from Egypt and bring them out. And verse 18 says what? They're going to do what? And they will laugh in your face. Is that what your Bible says? No, it says they will what? They'll listen to you. It's an amazing promise. These are the people that rejected him. They're going to have some 80-year-old guy traipse and be like, hey, I talked to a burning bush. And here's what God said to me in that bush. And they're going to be like, okay, let's do it. This is an act of faith, not only in what he says and who he claims to be, but in the God that revealed it to him. They will listen. This is a promise of divine blessing, of a divine answer. This is God saying, I not only know the outcome, I know the hearts and the responses of those hearts and what they need to hear to bring about the conclusions I desire for you. Moses, go and tell them. They will listen. And they do. Now, as we continue on, after the Lord declares his lordship over Israel, because that's exactly what has gone on, God is going to establish Moses, in essence, as king over Israel, as the leader appointed to move them, because he has that right. He shows that not only does he have the right to appoint a leader, but that he is moving the hearts to accept him. So God not only has the right to appoint the leader, he exercises that right by causing the elders to respond with a, okay, we'll follow you to Moses. He has the right and he exercises the rule over Israel. Now we're going to see he does the same thing with Pharaoh. Look with me in verse 18 after that section. They will listen to your voice and you and the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt and say to him, Yahweh, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us. Now please let us go three days' journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. Now, we certainly know that Israel had no intention of returning after three days of worship. 
There have been a couple solutions. I've mentioned one before, that Mount Sinai, Mount Horeb, where Moses is right now, is about a three-day journey. Uh, I, I also was reading a commentary this, over this last week where he mentions it's a little bit of a euphemism where you have a small thing that means much more. You know, like when someone says, hey, can I just have a moment of your time? They never take just a moment. They mean something way longer than a moment. Or when your teenage daughter says, hey, Dad, can I have the keys? She's not asking for just the keys. She's asking for the car that comes with the keys. And so by Moses saying, we want to go three days away to worship, Moses is asking for something that both Pharaoh and Moses know is much more significant than merely a, a worship fest at a mountain nearby. Right? Like he is asking for a significantly bigger ask. I think that's, that's probably true. I don't think Moses is being tricky or deceitful in this ask. I don't think that's the point. I don't think God's setting him up for that. God has no problem declaring exactly what he wants and then bringing Pharaoh to his knees. So I, I would suggest we ought to see Moses as speaking honestly and, and perhaps because of Hebrew politeness or, or maybe I should say Asian politeness, the ask is said a lot more kindly than, than just a demand to go. Having said that, if we continue on in our reading, verse 19, God declares, but I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled. Again, what is God telling us about himself? He knows the future. He knows Pharaoh's heart. He knows Pharaoh won't respond unless compelled by a mighty hand. I know the king of Egypt. He will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand. Don't you love the narrative portion right there? He needs a mighty hand. So here's my hand. It's coming. Because that's exactly what Pharaoh needs. So, I'll stretch out my mighty hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. And after that, he will let you go. God uses Pharaoh to establish his brilliant power, his glorious might, his masterful wisdom, and his sweet kindness to Israel, doesn't he? Pharaoh's resistance to God, his hard-heartedness, is fully Pharaoh's problem. While at the same time, God is declaring, I am king over Pharaoh and all he does. And God unapologetically declares both to be true. And we'll look at this in the coming weeks, but Pharaoh is responsible for his hard and rebellious heart. When God judges Pharaoh at the end of days, Pharaoh will not be able to point at the Results and be like, well, God, actually, you got a lot of glory because of me. Nor will he say something like, well, you hardened my heart. What else was I supposed to do except have a hard heart? When Pharaoh stands in front of God, he will be accountable for his sin, his rejection of God's people, and his rejection of the God of the people of Israel. Let me just read several verses to you. Um, Exodus 4.21, the Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that you... Do before Pharaoh the miracles that I have put in your power, but I will harden his heart, God says. That's in chapter 4, verse 21. So that he will not let the people go. Chapter 8, verse 15. When Pharaoh saw that there is respite, he hardened his heart and would not listen to them. That's Moses and the elders, as the Lord had said. Chapter 8, verse 19. The magician said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. But Pharaoh's heart was hardened and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Exodus 10, verse 1. 
the Lord said to Moses, go into Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and, his, and the heart of his servants, that I may show these signs of mine among them. So who hardened Pharaoh's heart? Can you explain that clearly to me? Let me read these again just real quickly. He hardened his heart. Let me just, like the pronoun there is, Pharaoh hardened his heart. Go back to chapter 4. I, speaking of the Lord, will harden his heart. Verse 8, 19, Pharaoh's heart was hardened. Chapter 10, verse 1, I have hardened his heart, God says. Chapter 14, verse 4, I will harden Pharaoh's heart. So who hardened Pharaoh's heart? The answer is God sovereignly used Pharaoh. And Pharaoh hardened his heart, and God hardened his heart. It is not a one or the other. It is actually both. Because God is sovereign over the human heart, while at the same time, neither getting sin on his hands or being accountable for their sin. I might have just suggested to you, you all implicitly know that this must be true. When you go to the cross of Christ, was the Father somehow not in control of Judas? As though Judas' heart somehow rebelled against God and God was just hoping it resulted in the crucifixion of his son. And yet we know that Judas will be punished for the betrayal of Jesus Christ. Do you think that God with Pilate was at all wondering what was going to be coming with his declaration of justice or really injustice? Again, God was sovereignly moving men who in their sinful hearts were sinning when they crucified the Lord of glory. And yet it was fully under God's control. And this must be the case or you have no hope as you exit these doors and enter a world of sinners, including yourself, that God has any security in guaranteeing your outcome or goodness or bringing you even to glory. If God is not sovereign over the human heart, he actually is not sovereign at all. He is sovereign over all things, including the heart. And yet he does so without bringing guilt on himself or excusing the sinfulness of our hearts. We are both responsible for our sin, while it is also true that God is sovereignly leading us so that there are no mistakes, there are no decisions out of his control, there are no choices of sin that somehow broke his kingship over those decisions. God is both sovereign over the human heart, and the heart is still responsible for its sin. So as you look at Pharaoh here, hardening his heart, in chapter 3, it says the Lord is going to move and stretch out his hand. So go back with me to, to chapter 3, verse 20. Just for the joy of reading this phrase again, verse 19. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it, and afterwards he will let you go. There's actually two parallel phrases here. He says, I will send out my hand, and the result will be that Pharaoh will send out Israel. Same words. And, and, and there's kind of like this, this mirror 
that as God strikes and sends out, then, then the king of Egypt is going to send out Israel and let them go. But what it requires of God to do to break down Pharaoh and his pride is send out miracle after miracle after miracle in which he declares through these plagues, which mostly fall on Egypt, while he carefully protects his promised people. Two things. He declares that he is judging Egypt for their sin, for their wickedness in turning against his people and prosecuting a genocide and oppression on them for, for almost a century. While at the same time, declaring his love and protection in the middle of this tragedy to his beloved people. And God is going to do this. And he's going to do it using Pharaoh as the mirror by which the world is finally able to see into the heavenly power of God. I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt. And afterwards, he will let you go. Okay, so... I want you to think of the parallel here. Go tell the elders, and they will do what? They will listen. Now, go and talk to Pharaoh, and I will strike Egypt, and what will happen? He will let you go. And so, so Moses is getting a blueprint in which God is declaring, I know Pharaoh's heart. I know it's hard, and it will take a mighty hand, and I am mighty. I will bring my hand and strike Egypt. Then the heart I know, the heart of Pharaoh, will finally let you go. Finally in this text, look at verse 20. I'm sorry, further down from verse 20. 21. And I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And when you go, you shall not go empty. But each woman shall ask of her neighbor and any woman who lives in her house for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing, and you shall put them on your sons and on your daughters, so you shall plunder the Egyptians. Just as a, a I think, an important textual point, that word plunder there is what happens when you defeat an enemy. Right? Like, so you go to the Battle of Jericho, they weren't allowed to plunder, and that's why Achan gets in trouble. That, that's, this, is, this is the spoils of war. And that's the word he's using here. God is already viewing this exodus as a holy war in which Israel is going to get the spoils. And he says, I am going to give you this plunder. Now, again, I want you to imagine this in a human context. You have this rival nation that you've enslaved because you hate them. You're killing all of their children, well, at least the male children. They're a little bit of a threat, so you need to keep them oppressed. Then their God wrecks your country. And so you give them all your gold. Does that make any sense? You would think that probably what you'd do is kill them, or maybe attack them, or at least kick them out and keep your gold. So, so look at what God says. After all of that, after these oppressed people who are, are being treated with the highest prejudice and being, having their babies killed, they are mere slaves in Israel, or excuse me, in Egypt. Verse 21, I will give this people what? Favor. I will cause the Egyptians to look at Israel with favor. Now before we move forward, if I'm in Israel and I have a little bit of a bad attitude about this thing, 
I'm thinking, like, you could have done this for the last hundred years? Because we've been slaves. Which means God has let them be slaves. And God's care of Israel includes some really hard decades for the Israelite people. Unless you think that your suffering means God doesn't exist, hear carefully what God is saying. I am king over the attitudes of Egypt, and I've let them sour. I've let you be oppressed. I've let you be hurt. I've let you suffer. I've let your babies die. I've let the king of Egypt hate you. I've, I've let this happen by letting their sin run and not stirring their hearts to favor that I could have done. You might have seen it, but a few weeks ago, Megan Rapino, this well-known soccer player, I think she hurt her Achilles heel in a championship game. In the news conference, she used that as proof that God doesn't exist because God wouldn't let bad things happen. Well, not only is Megan someone whose life and attitudes and politics are contrary to everything we see in Scripture, God does let sorrows enter into the lives of his precious people, let alone the world's people and those who do evil. And this text is merely the backside of that. If God could have granted favor to Israel, he didn't do so by good purposes. And again, go back to Genesis 15. God told Abraham some six centuries before this that this is exactly what was going to happen. So when God calls you to cloudy days, hard days, personal trials and sorrows, he is still on the throne. And the son of glory knows exactly what it's like to suffer under the hand of God. He has not called you to anything he has not gone through. He has not called you to anything he does not understand. But as we look at this text, the point of this part of the text is actually to call us to see something more. God is going to give favor. And rather than Moses and the elders doing something, and rather than there being some response by Egypt, the people that actually do the thing here are the women. Look what the women are supposed to do. This, this would take guts. Each woman shall ask of her neighbor. So you're supposed to go to your Egyptian neighbors and say, can I have that diamond necklace you're wearing? <laughs> and the clothes that are in your son's room would probably fit my son perfectly. Can I have those too? I, it just feels pretty audacious to me. I'm sitting there reading the text going like, man, that would take some real, uh, real courage. So the women are supposed to go and ask their neighbors for their stuff, for their silver, their gold jewelry, and their clothing, it says. And then he commands, you shall put them on your sons and on your daughters. So here's the command. The women are to go plunder the nation of Egypt. Isn't that interesting? Not the men, not the soldiers, the women are going to go and plunder the nation. And God is probably doing an incredibly gracious thing to Israel. They're going to embark on a trek that's going to require of them resources they don't have. They're impoverished slaves. And they walk out with the wealth of Egypt in their pockets. They're going to be able to establish a new nation in the promised land and frankly, they're going to survive 40 years of wandering because they have lots of gold and silver 
and close. And again, you see the judgment of God. So this final section ends with, and so you shall plunder the Egyptians. They will listen. He will send you out. And so you'll plunder the Egyptians. Who is doing this? This is the work of God. This is God declaring to Moses, this is who I am. I am the Lord over all of Israel. I will appoint my leaders and I will cause the nation to embrace him. I am the king over the king of Egypt. I will move his heart. I will bend his knee and I will break his back so he bows down and does what I say. I will move his heart and in so doing, I will display my glory and power to the whole world. So that years later, the Philistines are warned about the God who brought them out of Egypt and send the ark back to Israel. God declares and preaches to the nations, he is the Lord over kings. He's not just the Lord over kings. He's the Lord of the people in the nation. He causes their hearts to look favorably upon Israel and they dump their money, their gold, their silver, and their clothes into the hands of the enemy. And this is what our God does because he's king. He's king and more than that, he cares about his people who've been suffering under this affliction. And he loves them and he rescues them. So what do we learn about God? We learn that the Lord knows the thoughts of people. He knows the thoughts of all people, kings and pharaohs and Egyptians, the leaders of Israel and the nation behind them. The Lord reveals that he understands and has the right to move the human heart. He understands the plans, the desires, the motives, the levels of stubbornness and compliance within our hearts. He reveals that he's a rescuer. He reveals that he loves people. He reveals that he's a God of mercy and pity to those who are suffering. He reveals that he's a God that keeps promises. He reveals that he's a God who is deeply concerned to have his people be his people. He's a God who moves with justice. He pours out justice and judgment upon Egypt for its oppression, for its wickedness, for its rapaciousness, for its bloodthirstiness and killing the innocent babies of Israel. He releases his people from bondage and declares his love for the whole world to see how he cares for his people who are helpless and in bondage as slaves. He reveals that he judges the land and even the animals for the sins of the people. For it is not just the Egyptians that suffer. God strikes the fields, the crops, and the animals too. He strikes the firstborn in Egypt as he declares that Israel is his firstborn. God declares he's king over land, animals, plants, people, and babies. He is Lord over all. The Lord reveals that he not only knows the future, but that he plans and executes the future according to his perfect will. He does so without fail, without error, without compromise to his perfect plan. So that the promises made to Abraham some six centuries before are going to be perfectly fulfilled and manifested in the book of Exodus. I can't tell you what I'm going to eat tomorrow for breakfast. It is absolutely stunning to the human imagination 
to understand so perfectly, not merely the future, but the details of the future, and speak with such profound confidence and promises that will not yet be seen for centuries to come. I think we take with too much negligence the profound mystery of who our God is. The Lord reveals that he not only knows the future, but he plans it. The Lord reveals that even our sin, for which we are fully accountable, is used by him to reveal his glory, expose his mercy, and manifest his justice. So that even the sins and the fear of Pharaoh are unified with Israel's plight and sorrows and suffering and prayer to bring about God's declaration of both his mercy and justice. God was doing that. There's an antiphonal choir going on where Israel crying out in, in suffering and affliction sees God rescue in mercy while Pharaoh in declaration of pride and arrogance is calling out for God's justice and God sings a choir where he hits both notes with perfection. Our God is amazing. He does so while never overlooking the transgressor's sin, as Exodus 34, 7 declares, that he will be merciful to whom he will be merciful, but he will by no means clear the guilty. And so in the same act of rescue, he declares he is a God of judgment. And he is our God. So if I can just turn a corner here real quickly. This is the cross in both the same moment showing his incredible mercy to sinners who trust in Jesus Christ. God offers forgiveness and pardon without limit to all who turn and ask for forgiveness. And yet with that same stroke that offers you complete forgiveness, he allowed the son who is a blameless lamb to be killed for sins he did not do. Both mercy and justice combined. It is not mercy triumphing over justice, nor is it justice in opposition to mercy. They are together unified in the cross of Jesus Christ. Right? We, we are forgiven because it is by his wounds we are healed. And yet he was wounded for our transgressions. So it should be no surprise that when we look back and see the work of God to declare his kingship over Israel and over Pharaoh and Egypt, he does so in such a way that he shows mercy to the afflicted and pitiable people of Israel and justice with the same work to the people of Egypt. Can I just appeal to all of you to beg God for mercy. To ask for his saving grace. To lean on him and trust in this amazing God. If he knows your heart and he knows what you've done, there's going to be no sin or no motive you can hide from him. If he is a God who the king of Egypt cannot withstand, you will not withstand him on the day of judgment either. Trust in our gracious God. It is a simple song, crowned him with many crowns, the lamb upon his throne. 
Hark how the heavenly anthem drowns all music but its own. Awake my soul and sing of him. Hail him as thy matchless king throughout all eternity. Crown him the Lord of life, who triumphed o'er the grave, who rose victorious in the strife for those he came to save. His glories now we sing, who died and rose on high, who died eternal life to bring, and lives that death may die. Crown him the Lord of love. Behold his hands inside, those wounds yet visible above in beauty, glorified. When you get to heaven, he's still going to be a wounded lamb. Those wounds yet visible above in beauty glorified. Those wounds will be tributes to his glory because in those wounds there is both grace and mercy preached. All hail, Redeemer, hail, for thou hast died for me. Thy praise and glory shall not fail throughout eternity. I hope he's your king because he has the right to be your king he is exercising rule right now. He is causing your heart to beat in your chest and your lungs to breathe air. He is exercising a gracious rule for you right now. But he asks that you bend your knee, you submit your heart, and you trust him. Or like Pharaoh, he will bring justice because he will by no means clear the guilty. So turn to God that you might live. For those of you that are struggling through trials, I don't think any of you is facing the king of Egypt. I don't think any of you is looking at a nation hostile to you. I don't think any of you has to go and tell a whole bunch of elders, you're the king now. And Moses had to do all of that. And God did it. Moses just obeyed. Can I call you to obedience by faith in Christ? I don't know what God has called you to, but it is not the mountain of hurdles that Moses had. Obey the Lord. Trust in him. His promises are secure. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you so much for this reminder of who you are. You reveal your power over nations, over kings, over hearts, over motives, over affections, over the future. You reveal yourself to be the promise-keeping, faithful God who never lies. You reveal yourself to be the merciful God who, who, who is present in the suffering of your people. You reveal yourself to be a personal God who loves people and calls them into fellowship with you. Lord, I pray that you would strengthen our church to glory in our glorious King, to exalt him and to love him. Lord, in moments where our trials feel like mountains shadowing over us, would you strengthen our hearts to trust in you? To trust in the God who moves, who works, who is present, and who is good. Lord, help us to love you with our whole hearts, to trust in you. If there's any in this room who have yet to trust in the God of mercy and the God of justice, Father, I pray that today you might call them to your grace and mercy by the work of the Spirit, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.